I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the Webby-nominated podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. I'm really excited to announce my partnership with Book of the Month Club, bookofthemonth.com. Book of the Month has been around since 1926, although not as a website, obviously. And each month you can pick from the five books that they think are the greatest, which are their books of the month, and you can pick the one you want the most, and they'll send it to you. It's really fantastic. In September, they had an early release of Adrian Broder's Wild Game, which I'm releasing this week, and it's fantastic. I have a special code for my listeners, code Zibby, Z-I-B-B-Y. So if you put in this exclusive code, you will get your first book for just $5, which is an exclusive offer that they're not offering to anybody else, and that's really exciting. So you should definitely sign up. Use code Zibby, Z-I-B-B-Y. They really have fantastic books, and And um, I use the service myself. I've given it as gifts. I adore it. And you should definitely sign up and let me know what you think. I am so excited to be interviewing Adrienne Broder. I've been waiting so long to talk to her. Her book, Wild Game, My Mother, Her Lover, and Me, is an amazing memoir, and I just loved it. The film rights have already been sold to turn in entertainment with the director attached, and it's just so good. Anyway, Adrienne Broder was one of the co-founders, along with Francis Ford Coppola of Zoe Trope All Story, which was a National Magazine Award-winning publication. She also worked as a book editor and has had her own work published in the New York Times Modern Love column, among many other publications. She is currently the executive director of Aspen Words, a literary arts nonprofit program of the Aspen Institute, and she very recently moved from New York City to Cambridge and spends time there and on Cape Cod with her husband and children. So thanks for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thank you for having me. I love this podcast. Oh, thanks, Adrian. So can you please tell listeners what your amazing memoir, Wild Game, is about and what inspired you to write it? Well, Wild Game tells the story of a particular moment in my life that sort of changed everything and the repercussions from it. And that moment took place on a hot July night in 1980 when I was just 14 years old and I was asleep. And my mother, Malabar, came into my bedroom and it was late. It was, you know, after midnight or something. And she said, Rennie, wake up, you know, wake up, please. Rennie is my nickname. And I remember so distinctly not wanting to be roused. And then she said, Ben Souther kissed me. And of course, with that, <laughs> you know, my eyes popped open because Ben Souther was my stepfather's best friend. And, you know, Ben Souther was married. And, you know, my mother was married, of a course. So these four were couple friends. And what I didn't know at that moment was that my mother was about to embark on this epic love affair that would last over a dozen years. But what I did know, even in that moment, was that it was one of those life-altering happenings, like that, you know, I went to bed as my mother's daughter and I woke up as her best friend and confident and co-conspirator, and it would really never be the same. (laughs) Wow. Even just hearing you say that, you can just tell this is like an amazing book. You know, I mean, I just, oh, no, it's like, you. it's the story. It's like, you're obviously a gifted storyteller, whatever story you were telling. And the fact that you got this one to tell is, is fantastic for us as readers, at least. <laughs> <laughs> so why did you decide this happened when, you, you know, years and years ago? Why now? Why did you write this book right now? Well, the truth of it is, of course, some part of me has been writing this story my whole life, right? I mean, mostly in my journal and at different points in my life, I tried to tackle it in different ways. Like I would say there was some period in my life where I told this story entirely humorously as, 
you know, cocktail party patter or funny essays. And I tried to write it as a romantic comedy at one point. But I think why now is because or why when I did start to write it, it was it was having children and starting a family of my own that made me realize I really needed to reckon with my past. And I love my parents and I love my mother, but I did not want to parent or mother as I had been parented or mothered. And, you know, that was really probably the biggest impetus for writing it the way I've written it. And it's sort of, <laughs> aside from the point, but I think it's worth noting that my daughter will be 14 at the time of publication. And that was exactly the age I was when all this started in my own life. So I think, you know, there's probably some unconscious timing and, and considerations that went on as well. Wow. Coming full circle. Hello. Yes. You can sort that out with your therapist at another time. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> right. I'm just kidding. You wrote so beautifully about the morning when this all happened, or I should say in the middle of the night, you were talking about your brother, Peter. And I just want to read this one quote, how your mother and Peter and you had formed this triangle basically after your parents' divorce. And you write, our fundamental family unit since the divorce had always been a triangle, that sturdy shape, except on this morning, our geometry was changing. Before the end of the day, Peter's side would be cut loose and once untethered from him, my mother and I would shapeshift into a single straight line, the most direct conduit for her secret. Ooh. <laughs> like, <laughs> Thank you. So tell me about your relationship with Peter and how having such a close relationship with your brother and all three of you together changed when suddenly you were taken into her confidence and he was left out. Well, you know, I think we all know that secrets are corrosive. And this was definitely a dividing line. And it's not that, you know, everything had been perfect before and suddenly all had changed. But we were this tight little unit, the three of us, especially since my parents had gotten divorced. You know, it was my mom and my brother and me. I mean, we still saw my father frequently, but that felt like the family union. And suddenly when I had this special access to my mother, you know, that's the shape shifting. That became the single line. Of course, you know, what is the truth about any memoir is it's it's usually just one story. It doesn't tell the story. So the fact is, my mother's affair and the repercussions on my relationship with my brother, I mean, it's sort of a one-off around the affair. I mean, it was dynamic and it went on for years. But this was who my mother was. And she often made us compete for her affection in some way or another. And you know, so this is one example, but there were many times, you know, she and my brother were closer or this, this constant shifting took place. But as a result, of course, my brother and I have, you know, had a very complicated and difficult relationship. And I think we have a tough time trusting each other. And on some level, we've always, you know, we coexist, but we have not been terribly close as adults. Hmm. Do you think your mom thought about these things? Like, what do you think now that you're a mom and you have an almost 14 year old, what do you think she was thinking that night? Like put yourself in her shoes. Do you think she would have ever imagined that it would have these effects on you and the effects on your relationship with Peter and the whole, like the ongoing effects of her decision? I, I absolutely do not think she thought about it. I mean, I just, it sounds terrible to say, but I don't think she was a deeply reflective person. Mm -hmm. I think she had a need and she did what she needed to get that need satisfied at that moment. It would be hard for me to guess as to whether or not she regrets it because she certainly knows it caused a lot of strife along the way. But I don't think she's a person who tends to 
you know, just reflect deeply on, on her actions or the, the results of them. Hmm, interesting. Yeah. Do you feel like if you were to go back to that moment, like, are there any times you think it through and think, what if I had done this or what if I had handled it differently? Or do you regret how you handled things? Do you feel like there were no other choices available to you? You know, it's a good question. On some level, we all only get one childhood, right? So it seems perfectly normal to us. Right. <laughs> I mean, I I was not aware of how unusual this was. It was it was my childhood. It wasn't that I thought everyone abetted their mother in having affairs, certainly, but it was the one that I had. And and honestly, it was kind of thrilling at the time. Of course, with the hindsight of, you know, all these years and, you know, a lot of reflection on it, you know, I would I would never want to repeat those actions and mire myself down in the level of deception, which I think, you know, really caused a lot of self-loathing for me in my life. That said, you know, you don't get to go back with your <laughs> with your adult hat on. I think if I were, you know, if, if magically time went back and I were that 14-year-old in that bed again, I'm sure I would have just careened down the same path. I'm not sure if I answered your question. <laughs> no, I was just curious. I don't think there's, I mean, there's it's hard to go back to any stage in our life about anything and say, would you have done it differently? Because if you would have, then you would have, <laughs> like you didn't. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so, but exactly. I don't know. I feel like I spend time stewing over decisions I've made in the past and think like, well, what if I had, what if this, what if that? So I just was wondering if you were doing that too or not. <laughs> I mean, absolutely. All the time. Although, you know, some part of me, and I don't know if this is just a defensive mechanism, but some part of me thinks I'm, I'm pretty happy where I am in my life right now. I have a lovely husband. I have two wonderful children. I have a career I enjoy. So some part of me thinks, would I have been in this place? Would this have been my path had not all those other things happened? <laughs> so, right. you know, who knows? Who knows? Okay, I'll stop the philosophical <laughs> digging on reflection here. <laughs> Do you have any sense as to maybe it's just, maybe what you were saying before is just it that your mother wasn't prone to self-reflection entirely? But do you think there was anything with how she was raised, or just the era in general, or anything that contributed to the way she handled the whole affair and and how she parented you throughout? Like, where do you think it came from? Sure. No, that's a really interesting question. And I, you know, I spent a lot of time wondering how Malabar became Malabar. And then, you know, you sort of, just to go back to the philosophical, how do any of us become ourselves? And I'd say it's sort of, it's all of, you know, all of the above. It's some part hereditary and some part, you know, nature, nurture, all of it. And I, I will say that through writing this book and researching my mother's life and talking to a lot of people about her, I became more empathetic, which might sound strange, but she had a tremendously lonely childhood and suffered, you know, unimaginable losses before I ever met her or came into her life. So, you know, she was the only child of parents who got divorced, married, I mean, I'm sorry, married, divorced, married, divorced to each other. Her father lived in another country most of her life, so he was a rare presence. Her mother was alcoholic. So, you know, picture a pretty lonely childhood. Then she finds out she has a secret other family. You know, their sort of <laughs> predisposition towards infidelity did not seem to start with her generation. <laughs> and then, you know, she meets and marries my father and her first child dies. So, you know, just a lot, a lot of tragedy. And in some ways, I genuinely admire what a survivor she was. Like some part of me thinks, and still this woman reached for love. You know, we could argue that it's, 
not the best way of going about it, certainly, but, you know, that was who she was. And, you know, she had a lot of great characteristics. She was smart and charming and charismatic and, you know, an unbelievable chef. But I think what she didn't have was any kind of proper parental guidance, which arguably I didn't have. And so she didn't really necessarily know how to use her gifts and flaws wisely, right? I mean, I think one of the things that we emphasize in raising our children today are, you know, teaching them how to be self-aware. You know, you've got this gift, but, you know, you, you need to work on that or, you know, that type of thing. And yet you have become like the opposite of this with this as your model. Well, I hope so. <laughs> I hope so. But you know, what? You, you know, you in the back of your head, you always think, well, she thought she was a pretty terrific mom, I'm sure. Like, I, you know, I don't. Uh, yes. I mean, I have chosen really to dig through my past and try to be as aware as I can possibly be. And yet I'm sure there are things I'm unaware of in myself. We all are. True. Well, I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt on the, on the <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. I, I have certain things that I'm sure I will never do. And one of them is waking my daughter up in the middle of the night to involve her in, you know, my personal life. <laughs> <laughs> so that's off the table. So that's good. That's good news. Excellent. <laughs> Tell me a little more about Malbar's love of cooking, because I feel like cooking played such a big role in this book and how just you could smell and taste the food and the way you described it and particularly the, you know, I, I want to say ocean food, but that's not the right way to say it. But, you know, sea, li- <laughs> sea life, you know, sea, seaside meals and just the the grittiness of some of the preparation. And I don't know. Talk to me a little more about that. Yeah. Well, my mother was astonishingly game. I mean, she really had a zest for life. She was, you know, willing to, you know, crawl through muddy clam holes to get clams and all of that. We had great fun as children sort of harvesting and collecting food with her. And she also just truly had a rare gift. I mean, she was one of those people who could, you know, we could be in a restaurant and we could taste some wonderful dish and we might think, oh, yeah, maybe there's some cardamom or something. But she could not only identify, you know, that little wisp of a flavor, but she could just recreate these sauces. And she loved doing it and she loved entertaining. And she was, you know, just tremendously alive in the kitchen. And food has always just been a huge part of my life. And I'm forever shocked when people don't really care that much about it or those people who can like forget to eat meals. I mean, never is there a moment when I'm not thinking of the next thing I'm going to eat. But yeah, it was, you know, it was her gift and, you know, she enjoyed it. I've spent half this conversation planning my lunch. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) (laughs) But I I am with you too. I, I am. I mean, I don't know. I wish I could not be thinking about food, but I also think there's so much enjoyment people get from food. So I don't know. It's a loss if people don't appreciate it. Yeah. And then, of course, with her, you were talking about sort of the greediness. Well, the the title of the book, Wild Game, stems, of course, from this ruse, which was a cookbook that she and her lover were, you know, and and the partner. So my stepfather and his wife were going to create. And it was really created with it in mind to... uh, have more opportunities for them to get together as a foursome. But it was also this way, uh, you know, it was a real cookbook that they were proposing. So he, Ben, would arrive with, you know, some wild game, something he had caught or killed, and my mother would transform it. And there were these sort of epic, fabulous dinners with way too much booze and, you know, these testing, these test nights, which were also just a part of my whole childhood. We'd come home, I mean, 
never did I have, you know, the swamps and frozen dinner that I coveted. It was always, you know, some odd and curious <laughs> and sophisticated dish that she was testing for either a cookbook she was writing or a food column that she had or something like that. Well, that's a treat too. I mean, <laughs> well, not necessarily when you're 11. <laughs> yeah, I know. But you ate it. I mean, my kids would not eat any of that. I don't know. So maybe you know, there was just no choice. I don't know. I mean, it's funny because I have a picky eater and a, and a very adventurous eater. And I constantly wonder like how my son would have survived with my mother, but I just, I, I, I don't know. There's nothing I didn't eat. There's nothing I didn't try, you know, from (laughs) rodents to innards to exotic other things. It was just the food that was presented. Wow. So let's go back to writing this book. How long did it take for you to write it? You mentioned it, it was, you were writing it in your head most of your life and in journals, but when you actually were sitting down crafting it in this current iteration of, of this memoir, how long did this particular stage take and where did you like to write, like paint a picture for me of like where you like to sit and where you do it and how long and all, all of that good So, you know, so if you kind of don't count the lifetime of processing the material. I mean, really, it took about two years and I got a toehold during a three week long residency, which was an absolute gift to me. And I remember leaving that residency thinking, well, you know, when and if I ever get another three weeks of solid writing time in my life, I'll get more done. Because, of course, with two children and a husband and a job I love, I couldn't imagine when that would ever happen again. But I heard the advice that I should try to write a little bit every day, that what I started to do was wake up early. So I started sort of by waking up, I don't know, a half an hour before my family at 6.30. And then I started waking up at 6 and then 5.30 and then 5. And I I won't go on because, yes, it is insane. But I loved that sacred morning time before anyone could bother me, before my to-do list kicked in. And I just wrote and wrote in the mornings and really had you know, the pages stacked up quickly and I had a draft in probably less than a year. And then I gave that draft to my agent and, you know, I'd had lots of other people read it and help me along the way, but I, I gave a pretty polished draft to my agent who had some wonderful ideas and we decided to try to put it together as a proposal. So I did a lot of polishing of the first five chapters and then sort of wrote an outline for the rest. And she submitted it as a proposal I think it was October of 2017, and it sold quickly, and I revised it for about nine months after that and handed it in really about exactly a year ago right now. Wow. And how has your experience been since you released it? Have you, like, has your family all read it? Like, how did they respond to it? Well, let's start with that. How did your family respond to it? (laughs) How did my family respond to it? Well, my family... My immediate family is very, very small, but my extended family is, you know, in quotes, modern and huge because, of course, you know, each of my parents married twice after their divorce from one another. So in my lifetime, I've had four step parents and many step siblings. So, you know, there have been a lot of reactions. And thus far, I'll say that everyone has been incredibly supportive. I mean, my mother and Ben Sparrow, was not exactly new news by the time people were hearing about the book, but most of them didn't know the level of my involvement. So that was kind of startling and it made me nervous to sort of think what they would think about that. You know, I mean, I had step-siblings 
you know, from my first stepfather, who was the one who was cuckolded, and I had step-siblings from my second stepfather, you know, so there was a lot, a lot going on. But of course, in the end, it was my mother who I was most worried about, because I've always had, you know, I've had this fraught relationship with her, obviously, but we've also always been very close. And I was worried, you know, but I probably let her know about, you know, it was probably four years ago that I let her know that I was going to do this. I was really going to tackle this book at some point in time. I was going to write it straightforward and memoir. It wasn't going to be fiction. It was, you know, this was what I was going to do. And I will say that she was supportive. I mean, I'm sure she was anxious and I'm sure she didn't necessarily love the idea, but she did not say, oh, good Lord, not that, don't do that. And then during the actual writing of the book, um, she became very ill and she's developed severe dementia. So I'm, I'm quite sure she's no longer able to read any kind of extended narrative. I mean, I know she holds the newspaper and looks at headlines and stuff, but I don't imagine she could read a book. But that said, during the process of writing it, I read much of it aloud to her. And she, (laughs) it might sound funny, but she seemed to take great pleasure in, in hearing about her back in the day when she was this powerful woman and fabulous in the kitchen and seductive with men, because of course she's in an incredibly powerless stage of life right now. So I I will never know the end of that question. I will never know what my mother thinks of the book or if she would approve or not, but I'm at peace with it. Wow. Well, at least, I mean, well, that's going to come out wrong. I was going to say, well, at least, you know, you could talk to her about it while she's still here, despite dementia. I mean, I don't know. I mean, people probably have different views on if you're writing a memoir about a parent, is it better to sort of wait until they've passed away or if they should read it themselves or I don't know. It's sort of an interesting timing question. Yeah, I think the thing is, I don't know that we ever get (laughs) a choice in that or, you know, best laid plans and all of that. Right, exactly. Yeah. So what is next for you? You have, I'm sure, tons of promotion for the book. Are you thinking of writing another book? Um, I know you have a full-time job at the Aspen Institute. So tell me about what life is looking like for you in the near future. Life is looking quite chaotic for me. (laughs) As I mentioned, like I have newly moved from New York City to Cambridge, Massachusetts, which I think is all a beautiful thing. But it is, you know, I'm, I'm in the throes of a lot of boxes and unpacking and getting my bearings in a new home. I also have this, you know, incredible book tour ahead of me, which I feel very lucky about, but slightly overwhelmed by. And, you know, I do have a job I just love as the executive director of Aspen Words. So it's going to be busy. The future is going to be very, very busy. Uh, but I hope after that to definitely have some quiet time. I mean, I think there's a finite of the year will be quite something. And then I do hope to start on a next book. And I am just in the very beginning phases of conceiving it. So a conceiving of it. So I, um, I don't really have a pitch or anything to tell you, but I do know that will, it will be fiction. I will not be making a foray into another memoir anytime soon. <laughs> <laughs> Just out of curiosity, when you know you're going into such a busy, crazy time, do you have any like strategies for how you cope with all that stress? Like, is there anything you really do to 
sort of help yourself manage? I'm always looking for <laughs> suggestions. And Oh my God, if you find one, please call me immediately. <laughs> no, I wish I had some preternatural zen or could tell you that I run five miles and then meditate, but no, I don't have time for any of it. And I, yeah, I feel overwhelmed, but I'm, you know, I'm just plugging away and, and trying to regain a sense of equilibrium because you have it at different periods of your life in greater, <laughs> greater or lesser degrees. And I recognize that I, you know, certainly before I start traveling, I need to find my center again in a, in a bigger way. And I, I'm getting there. All right. Well, if I find the secret sauce, I will let you know too. <laughs> Please do. Please do. <laughs> um, do you have any advice to aspiring authors? You know, I know that everyone works so very differently. So I'm always loath to give advice. Like everyone gave me the advice of write a sloppy copy. And I'm like, I can't do that. I, I tend to just sort of write one chapter and get it mostly, mostly right. But I'd say if there's one thing that really changed my writing life, this is just for me, but it was to be in touch with the material every single day, as opposed to this, like, I'll do a block in January. And then hopefully if I get free time in June, I'll write again. I, by, by working on the material every day, even if it was just reading it or thinking about it, it just, it lodged itself in my subconscious in a way that kept it going all the time. So almost every conversation or you know moment or book I read or something, it would all sort of be cycled through this particular lens or paradigm or way I was thinking of it. And I thought that was incredibly helpful. And even if it's just 15 minutes, um, I think, I think if you're engaged with a project you love, you should stay in touch with it. That's great advice. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for writing this amazing memoir that was so good. And I have not stopped thinking about it, as I'm sure many people will feel as they read it as well. So I just uh, wanted to say thank you as a reader and a fan, <laughs> as well as... Oh, thank you so much for having me, Zibi. It's really course. been great. And I hope to meet you in person sometime soon. Terrific. Thanks. All right. Thanks so much. Bye. Bye. Thanks again for my new partnership with Book of the Month Club, bookofthemonth.com. Use code Zibby, Z-I-B-B-Y, to get your first book for just $5 and sign up for this really fantastic subscription box service. Thanks for listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. You can follow me on Instagram at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You can always email me at zibby at zibbyowens.com. <laughs>